Uh, we are in a series called Encounters with Jesus, where we are looking at different episodes in Jesus' life and ministry where he was coming up against human beings, people made in his image, uh, and finding them um, a under, new understanding of what redemption looks like. And it's been an amazing series so far. Uh, we've seen uh, a blind man healed. We have seen uh, Jesus love children last week. And originally, what we were going to talk about this morning was not on our original docket. And I thought, well, since Chad taught about children and how Jesus loves children last week, this week we talk about how Jesus got angry. Uh, that Jesus, uh, there is this fascinating episode where Jesus comes into the temple and turns over the tables. And it has been a passage that has captivated me for years, perplexed me in many ways. Perhaps it has perplexed you, and so we want to pray this morning that God would give us eyes to see His Son for who He is and why this is actually good news for us this morning, uh, that Jesus has this passion for us more than anything that we could ever imagine. And so let me pray for us. We'll dive in. Father, we love you. We're thankful for your great love for us. We thank you for that this love stopped at nothing and sending your own Son to die for us. We thank you that in your love, in your passion, in your zeal for us, that you want us back. That when you see the sin that entangles us, the idols that we strive for, the way that we constantly turn away from you, that the anger and indignation that burns in your heart burns for us because you love us, because you want us back. So, Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see who you are this morning in the person and work of your son, Jesus. And as we um, try to seek understanding of this passage, that we'd leave this place with a greater depth of understanding of the cross and what you have done for us there. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin by reading the passage. Uh, again, I think it would be good to start there, and, and then we will um, kind of dive in. This is John 2. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it out, or you can get out the sheet in front of you. John 2, I'll begin reading in verse 13. John writes, The passage of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us? For doing these things, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. There's an op-ed piece some years ago in New York Times by Tim Kreider. Tim Kreider? We'll say Tim Kreider. 
Tim Kreider um, was a political cartoonist during the Bush administration and a huge liberal. So you can imagine being a liberal political cartoonist during the Bush administration. In his world, he had a lot of material. And he wrote a piece in 2009 called Isn't It Outrageous? And in this piece, he's talking about how our culture has become a culture of outrage. And maybe you recognize that this morning, that really we've become a culture who is angry. And in the piece, he argues it's because we like to be angry. And if you think about our current political climate even today, and this was certainly true back then, that it sells, that our culture has recognized that anger sells, that if you can make us feel outrage, it will rile us up. It will make us passionate, right? And it will make us go to a website, read a blog, right? Get the clicks that will then sell advertisement. And I think our culture recognizes this, that we have become more and more, we feed on this outrage. And what makes this particular article, I think, so profound and so well-written is rather than point the finger at other people, Creator points the finger at himself. He uses himself as the example of this truth. And I want you to listen to his words this morning as we get started. He says this, he says, I was a political cartoonist and essayist during the Bush administration. So I was professionally furious every week for eight years. He says, a couple of years ago, I learned something kind of embarrassing. Anger feels good. Okay, do you identify with that? So this is a man, right, who was a professional stirrer up. He, he stirred the pot. <laughs> that was his job. I'm going to stir the pot politically with these political cartoons. And he's recognizing, he's admitting, anger feels good and it embarrasses him. And he feels almost shame from this. I wonder if you feel that. He says, although we may consciously experience anger as upsetting, somatically, in other words, bodily, it feels a lot like the first rush of an opiate, a tingling warmth on the insides of your elbows and wrists and the back of your knees. He says, once I realized I enjoyed anger, I noticed how much time I spent experiencing it. He says, if you're anything like me, you spend about 87% of your mental life winning imaginary arguments that never actually take place. You're laughing because you're like, I think that number's too low. <laughs> I think it's a little higher. He goes on, and he says, outrage. Now, I want you to listen to this. He says, outrage is like a lot of other things that feel good, but over time devour us from the inside out. And it's even more insidious than most vices because we don't even consciously acknowledge that it's a pleasure. So in other words, the reason why, and this is Creter, but the, the, he, he's saying the reason why anger, anger is so dangerous is that, it actually, that we enjoy it, that we like being angry. Okay, well, why? Why would we like being angry? What, what would that do for us? I want you to listen. This is how he ends the article. He says, one reason we rush so quickly to the vulgar satisfactions of judgment and love to revel in our righteous outrage 
is that it spares us the impotent pain of empathy and the harder, messier work of understanding. And I know he's a writer using lots of big words, and it's early. <laughs> so let me put it this way. Angry, anger is a form of self-righteousness. It makes us feel righteous. It makes us feel right. It makes us feel just and justified. And so when you are angry at somebody else, and we'll just use, um, we were talking about this earlier, traffic. The problem with being angry in traffic is that you assume every other driver on the road is an idiot, and you are not. <laughs> that you are the righteous one. That you are the one who is wronged by every other person on the road. That everybody should get out of the way for you. Because you are the most important. You are righteous. You are the one who knows the right way to go. Anger, anger. It's a deep form of self-righteousness, and it makes us feel good. It makes us feel good to be right, to be righteous. And so as we come to this passage this morning, and we wrestle with it, the question I want you to wrestle with your tables is, well, is there then any such thing as truly righteous anger? If anger is so dangerous, if deep down we like it, it makes us feel good, it makes us feel like we're right, like we're better than other people, then is there any such thing as righteous anger? And I would argue to you this morning that in, in and of ourselves, there is not. It does not exist for us as human beings. But there is such a thing as righteous anger in God. And we see that righteous anger expressed in the incarnate Jesus when he came to cleanse the tables and cleanse his temple temple of his father's house. Now, the reason why I feel like I can say that, why we don't have righteous anger, but God does, is righteous anger, I think, has really two components. The first is judgment. It's judgment. Righteous anger requires judgment. You and I are not the judge. There is only one judge, and his name is God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we see that judgment being enacted in Jesus Christ at the temple. But the second thing, and the second way I think that we don't have righteous anger, but God does, is because his, his anger, His righteous anger, is redemptive. It doesn't just stop at condemnation, but His righteous anger ultimately is healing. It's cleansing. It redeems us. And so we're going to look at this in three ways this morning. Where does this anger of God, this righteous anger, where would it come from? Well, we're told in this passage that it comes from zeal. Another word for zeal is passion. That really the anger, the wrath of God is not in conflict with His love because it comes from His love. Because He loves us, because He's passionate for us, He will stop at nothing. And so I want to look at this love, this passion, in three ways. First, I want to look at Jesus' passion for the temple. Second, I want to look at Jesus' passion for his people. And lastly, I want to look at Jesus' passion at the cross. And in these three ways, we see the righteous anger of God flow out. Not at us, but for us. Here's what I want, to, I want us to look at. But first, Jesus' passion for his temple. I want you to look at verse 13. 
We're told it was the Passover, and Jesus goes to Jerusalem, verse 13, and he goes into the temple, and he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. So again, you need to recognize what the temple was for, particularly at Passover, right? The temple is a place of worship. It is the place of worship. It's the place where God's presence dwelled. Now, for us, we recognize God's presence dwells everywhere. In those days, it dwelled in a place. His presence was there. It was the holiest place that existed, a place where His glory resided. Not only was it a place of worship and a place for the glory of God, it was a place of redemption, and especially at Passover, a place where they celebrated that God is a Redeemer, and a place where they put that into practice. In other words, a place where they came in humility, recognizing their sin, and they came to sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats to make atonement for their sins. A place of worship, a place of redemption, had become a place of commerce. So as Jesus comes into the temple, expecting to find the glory of God, the worship of God, the redemption of humble sinners seeking atonement. Instead, he finds commerce. He finds people trying to make money off of religious practice. He finds people gladly buying into that commercial enterprise, completely missing the whole point of what redemption and what sacrifice was all about. And so many people, as they study this passage, they wrestle with what Jesus does next. I want you to look with me. Verse 15, it says, He made a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. This is Jesus, meek and mild, making a whip. And striking that whip in order to drive out these money changers. Making a whip and striking it at them. Taking their coin purses and pouring them out. Taking their tables and flipping them over. And many people, you see this and you say, that doesn't seem like Jesus meek and mild. Is it possible in this moment that Jesus was angry? Can Jesus, the Son of God, who never sinned, is it possible for Him to be angry? You'll read many theologians who will say, well, no. I mean, anger is a vice, it's a sin. No, He can't be. I think He was just making a point. Just trying to make a good emphasis. He didn't want people to forget it. Well, people didn't forget it. But what I want to submit to you this morning is I think if you read it plainly and you put yourself, imagine watching this, Jesus coming in, flipping over tables. I think he was angry and I think it was righteous because I think in that moment, the Son of God enacted judgment on the desecration of the temple. Why? Because he is passionate for the temple. He was passionate for godly worship. 
He was passionate for redemption. We see this. He continues to say, verse 16, He told those who sold the pigeons, He said, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Don't make it a house of trade. Amos 5.21, through the prophet Amos, God says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I won't look on them. Take away the noise of your songs and the melody of the harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Jesus, the Son of God, is looking at His temple desecrated. The people in the temple completely making a mockery of the redemption that God had provided to them. And you wonder, does that exist today? Do we see, and is it possible, that commerce has found its way into the church today? Is it possible that we have seen consumerism impact the church today? And I think if we're going to be honest, we'll see that 2,000 years later, I wonder how much is different. We live in a consumer-driven society. I would argue we live in a consumer-driven city. Those of you who've heard me teach very much, you've heard me talk about this. Again, I love Dallas with all of my heart, but the reality is, is Dallas does not have a lot of natural resources to save for itself. And so what we do here, if you want to go do something fun, rather go to a mountain or go hiking or go, you know, boating on the Trinity River, anybody try that recently, (laughs) is we buy stuff. We buy stuff. We feel this as a family. On the weekends, what do we go do? We can go to the museum, we can go to the Arboretum, we can go to the mall. Every one of them costs money. There's more shopping malls per capita in Dallas than any other city, more restaurants, Per person, the New York City, the average person in Dallas eats out five times a week. We are a consumer-driven city. And we would be fools to think that consumerism doesn't impact every single thing that we do, including church. Including church. You think about how many churches there are in our city and how easy it would be for us to feel competitive with one another how easy it would be for us to compare ourselves to one another and think, well, here are the commodities that we have to offer you, Christian, over and against the commodities of something else. But it's, it's far more deeper than that. That's the easy thing. It's possible even to see what we're doing here as a commodity or to see me as a pastor, as a teacher, as a commodity. And here's what I want you to see and want you to wrestle with. The beauty of the church is not built on dynamic pastors and programs. The beauty of the church is built on a people. The program of a church, the pastors of a church, we're not the commodities. We all are. We are all what God has put here, not to be consumers of the church, but to be called to the church to recognize this is a place where we have been called to serve and to labor, to love one another. Why? 
because we love Jesus. And because of our love for Jesus, we love one another. And may be that be the thing, may that be the thing that draws people in. So I wonder, if Jesus were here today, what would he turn over? What would he turn over in our churches? But more importantly, what would he turn over in us, in our own hearts? What aspects of your heart have been held captive by consumeristic mindset that's honestly not that different than perhaps what we see here in the temple? These people coming to money changers, turning the house of the Lord into a place of trade and commerce. But it wasn't just a passion for the temple that drove Jesus. Ultimately, it was a passion for his people, a passion for his people. Look with me at verse 17. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal from your house will consume me. It's a a quote from Psalm 69, verse 9. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who approach you have fallen on me. So the first thing we have to recognize is, what do you mean by house? Zeal for your house will consume you. Well, in one aspect of this, you think, well, that's the house of the Lord. It's the temple. But we also recognize throughout the Bible that the house of God is not just a place or a building, but it's also a people. And we see this most, most profoundly in the New Testament, where, where Paul says in 2 Corinthians that we are God's temple because God abides in us. He dwells in us. So for Jesus to have that zeal for the house of the Lord means that he has zeal for the people of the Lord. Not just a building, but a people. Okay, well, what's zeal? What does that mean? As I told you before, like the New Living Translation of some of you will have this morning, will translate it as passion. And if you look at any thesaurus, will tell you zeal could be passion. But the Hebrew word, so remember, this is a quote from Psalm 69. The Hebrew word for zeal commonly described the jealous passion of a husband. Not just any kind of zeal, not just any kind of passion, but the jealous kind. The jealous passion of a husband. In other words, jealousy. Jealousy will consume me for the house of the Lord. Now, some of you heard this morning saying, okay, now... First, you told us that Jesus is angry, (laughs) and now you're telling us he's jealous. (laughs) I don't really know what to do with that. Let me show you what I mean. I want to show you why the fact that Jesus is jealous for you is such great news. This is Exodus 34. Exodus 34. If you know the story of Exodus, God gives the law in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, through Moses. The people receive the law, and then what happens? Well, rather than worship God, they decide to make um, a golden calf and bow down at the calf. They make an idol, and they worship the idol instead of God. Why? They feel like God's abandoned them, and he can't be trusted. They no longer trust in the promises of God to redeem them, so they worship something else. We do the same thing, by the way. At times, we fail to trust in the promises of God to redeem us, and so we'll turn to other idols. That's what they did. So Moses destroys the two tablets, and God, in his grace, says, let's try again. 
I want you to take two tablets just like the first, and I'm going to bring the law to you again because I'm a gracious God who loves you. In Exodus 34, after they've committed this treasonous act of idolatry, it says this, God said, Behold, I am making a covenant before all the people, and I will do marvels such as not been created in the earth or in any nation. Okay, what's a covenant? A covenant is a promise, a promise to death. It's a vow. It's a marriage vow. Till death do us part. God is making a marriage vow to his people, a covenant that says, I will be your God and you will be my people and I will stop at nothing to bring you to myself. Verse 11, Exodus 34, he says, Observe what I command to you this day. Take care, verse 12, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You will tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other God, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. In other words, God is saying, look, you have just worshipped an idol. And rather than crush you, I'm coming in love and I'm retaking vows to you. I'm having yet another marriage ceremony to you. And out of love, I'm making a covenant with you. But here's what I'm asking you to do. Give up your idols. Turn from these false gods and turn back to me. Tear these pillars down. Why? Because my name is Jealous. And I'm a jealous God. He's jealous because he is a husband who loves us, who wants us back, who sees us being an unfaithful bride, who's constantly turning our backs on him and pining after other gods, constantly pining after other idols. And he's looking down at us in the sin of idolatry and he's jealous. He's jealous because he wants us back. And what I want you to see this morning, brothers, is his jealousy is not weak. His jealousy is powerful. He doesn't sit back and complain in his jealousy and whine, but he takes his jealousy all the way to the cross. Remember I said there's two aspects, two reasons why God's righteous, anger is righteous and ours isn't. The first is that he's judge and we are not. The second is that his anger ultimately is redemptive. And this is where we're going to end this morning. That this passion that Jesus has for us was ultimately fulfilled at the cross. His passion, capital P at the cross. I want you to look at verse 18. So the Jews said to him, so we're back in John 2. John 2 verse 18. So the Jews said to Jesus, they just watched this happen. Jesus turning over tables, cleansing the temple, pouring out money bags, saying, do not turn the house of the Lord into a house of trade. So they say, well, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, by what authority do you have? What gives you the right to come in here and do this? And this is what he says. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In other words, not only do I want to cleanse this temple, not only do I want to turn over the tables in this temple, 
I want to tear the temple down, destroy this temple. Three days I'll rise it up. Of course, in hearing this, they have no clue what he's talking about. Not his disciples at, at the moment. Not any of the people who were there who witnessed this. Verse 20, they said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it in three days? So they don't get it. Jesus, what are you talking about? Here's what he's talking about. Verse 21, But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. See, in this moment, his disciples could not possibly fathom what he's talking about because it hadn't happened yet. But some years later, Jesus dies and rises again. They remember, here is Jesus destroying the temple of his body, and in three days, he raised it up. In three days, he raised it up. Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells us this. He says, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. Jesus is the new and greater temple. Remember, the temple was a place of the worship of God. Right, The glory of God resided. Jesus is the new and greater temple. The glory of God resides in him fully. He is fully God, right? fully man. But it's a place where redemption happened. A place where the blood of bulls and goats made atonement for the sins of the people. This sacrificial system, Jesus would ultimately tear down at the cross. And he would raise it up again in its fullness. Not blood of bulls and goats, but his very own blood sacrificed for you and for me. I wonder if you caught this. If you look at verse 17 one more time. John tells us that after Jesus cleanses the temple, that the disciples remembered that it was written in Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. It's a direct quote except for one thing. If you go to Psalm 69, you recognize that Psalm 69 is in the past tense. Zeal for your house has consumed. But that's not what this says. Zeal for your house will consume me. In other words, passion for the temple, passion for the people of God will ultimately consume Jesus at the cross. What makes the righteousness of God and His anger so amazing and honestly such good news is that that anger was poured out at the cross of Christ. Jesus, a jealous husband, stopped at nothing to win us back. And he laid his life down for you and for me. And the righteous anger of God fell not on us, but on him, so that we now could be brought back as sons, betrothed to him forever. Paul puts it this way, and I'll send you to your tables. This is Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 8. God shows his love for us, his love, his passion, his zeal, his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, we have been justified by his blood 
much more will be saved by him from the wrath of God. In other words, because God loved us, he saved us from his wrath. God's wrath is not in conflict from his love. It flows from it. Because he loved us, he saved us from his wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more that we are reconciled shall be saved by his life. Jesus loves you so profoundly, so passionately that he will stop at nothing to cleanse you to turn over the tables of your heart and to bring you back to himself. His anger is for you, not against you. His anger is for you because he loves you and he wants you to be his own. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would be with us now as we discuss these things. I pray that this would do two things in us. One, that we would look at our own anger and recognize that we are not righteous, that left to ourselves, we want to be the judge, that left to ourselves, rather than seek redemption, we want condemnation. Rather than seek the justice for you and for your glory, we want justice in ourselves, and that's what drives our own anger. But help us to recognize that your anger comes from a different place, a righteous place, a holy place, and a place ultimately that comes from love, passion, and zeal. And so may we see that you've passionately pursued us to the end, to death, even death on a cross. So thank you, Father, for what you've done for us, that your son Jesus bore your wrath and anger for sin on the tree, that we might be counted this morning as your sons, as your friends. Would you draw us near this morning? as your betrothed, as your bride. And may we see how much you passionately love us. And always we ask in Jesus' name, amen.